please turn in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus, chapter 4. I started a little Advent series on the sacrifices of the Old Testament, how they point us to the one true sacrifice in Jesus Christ. The work of Christ is so rich and deep that uh, in the Old Testament it required five different sacrifices to picture that one ultimate work of atonement done by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've looked at the burnt offering and the grain offering and the peace offering, and today uh, we look at the sin offering. And this is actually covered uh, from chapter 4, verse 1, uh, all the way to chapter 5, verse 13. But uh, for the sake of time, I'm just going to read the first 12 verses of chapter 4, and then make a few references to the other parts, but we'll try to get at the, the essence of what is going on in this sacrifice. This is God's Word. You can find this on page 113 in the Pew Bible. I'll be reading from the New King James Version here. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and does any of them, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish as a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, lay his hand on the bull's head, and kill the bull before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall pour the remaining blood of the bull at the base of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. He shall take from it all the fat of the bull as the sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat which is on the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks, and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys. He shall remove as it was taken from the bull of the sacrifice of the peace offering, and the priest shall burn them on the altar of the burnt offering. But the bull's hide and all its flesh, with its head and legs, its entrails and offal, the whole bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn it on wood with fire. Where the ashes are poured out, it shall be burned. And there will end the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us as we consider it together this morning. Last week, I got uh, notice that uh, one of my former uh, colleagues in our department over at the university uh, died last week at, uh, in the early 70s. He'd not been retired long, um, but he had struggled with cancer for, for some time, and uh, the cancer had eventually taken his life. And uh, I'm sure that um, the fact that cancer is a dangerous and a deadly foe is not news to any of you. Uh, roughly right now in America, uh, a little over 600,000 people 
die every year from some kind of cancer. And uh, if you're a, a male in this auditorium, uh, your odds of getting uh, cancer are about uh, one in two. And if you're a female, one in three. Uh, so uh, all of us know people who've been affected uh, by cancer. And certainly for a lot of people, going to the doctor and having the doctor say to you, you have cancer is uh, one of the scariest propositions uh, we can think of. Uh, having had that happen in my own life, I can tell you it's very disorienting and uh, it, it really sort of throws your whole world uh, up in the air. Now, what's interesting is um, there's something far more dangerous that stalks us all, and it doesn't just affect our bodies, uh, it affects our souls, it affects our relationship with other people, and most importantly, our relationship with God, and that is the problem of sin. Um, and even though that's a far more serious problem than cancer, my guess is uh, if the doctor came out and said, um, you have sin, you have a case of sin, <laughs> you would be like, oh, that, that's no big deal. I mean, I, everybody's got that problem. I know that. Or uh, We would be able to dismiss that a lot more easily than the doctor coming out and telling us that we had cancer. And the reason that is the case is because we don't look at sin the same way that God does. And that, that's, that's just the bottom line. And what we have in this passage is um, a sacrifice that helps us understand, on the one hand, how serious and toxic sin is, but on the other hand, what a wonderful savior we have who takes that sin away and purifies us. So as we look at the passage this morning, and this is a passage to challenge believers in their ongoing battles with sin, we see the main point that Jesus is the answer to your ongoing problem with sin and its polluting effects. And so I hope as we look at this sacrifice, we'll see, again, another aspect of Christ's work uh, that helps us appreciate him all the more. And children, if you want to draw a picture for me, you might draw a picture of the priest carrying this animal outside the camp, all right? And, and listen for what that signifies and why that's so important for us to understand. There is an outline in the bulletin, and there are some cross-references there as well. And you'll see the first thing we want to notice is that sin is more persuasive, perface, pervasive, sorry, it's persuasive too, I suppose, but um, it's more pervasive and serious than you think it is. Uh, you see here uh, in, um, in the text, now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, if a person sins. And actually in the original language, that's probably better translated when a person sins, because this isn't a matter of if, it is a matter of when. And again, this is addressed to the covenant people of God. These are the people who God is living among. This is, this is the people for whom uh, a burnt offering is being offered morning and evening, every day, uh, that sacrifice doubled on the Sabbath day. So these are special people. 
and God has given them these provisions so God can live in their midst. And it's to these people that he's saying, when a person sins, this is what you do. That this is an ongoing problem for those who are God's people. Now, as where the, the, the previous three sacrifices we were looking at were what we call voluntary offerings, that upon occasions uh, a, a person could uh, decide to give a particular offering. These are, this is a mandatory offering. This is something that's required when a person sins, and they have to come uh, to the tabernacle, or later it'll be the temple, and offer the, the, the proper sacrifice. Well, this, is, this whole section goes all the way to chapter 5, verse 13. And it, and it describes what is to be done specifically depending on who sins. So uh, I read here from verse 1 to 12. So here the high priest is leading all the people into sin. And, the, and so the, all the people are guilty. And so the provision's there. If, if you want to look at this later, verses 13 to 21 uh, talks again about the whole congregation is corporately guilty. Verses 22 to 26 talks about a civil leader. Uh, verse 27 to 35, a common person. And then in chapter 5, verses 1 to 13, it talks about particular ways in which uh, people uh, sin and bring the need on to them, but then also talks about even the poorest people in the land, how they can offer an offering as well. And as we're just going to focus on verses 1 to 12 now, it's to see some of the, the, the distinct principles of this offering and how they point us to Christ. And one aspect here that's very important is that it, it's, it, the, the whole sacrifice is showing that this is a problem for everyone, all levels of society, even the high priest is, uh, is affected by this, that everyone in the church as it is, is affected by sin and needs to take account of it. The second thing, though, that's so uh, sort of striking to us is that this is about unintentional sin. Um, you see that in verse 2. If a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and does any of them. Now, some commentators think that at least part of what's in view is this extensive holiness laws that are being given to the people, and there's all kinds of ritual involved in that. And at any point, if a person violates some of this code, they are guilty, even if it was a total accident, even if it was done in ignorance, even if they didn't know it had happened, they're still guilty. And this is somewhat striking to us. I want to show you how the Bible contrasts sort of intentional versus unintentional sin. So if you keep your finger there in Leviticus 4 and then turn over to Numbers chapter 15, and uh, the passage I'll be reading is on page 171 of the Pew Bible. But if you turn over to Numbers chapter 15, you see this concept of an unintentional sin described. So uh, begin with me in verse 27. If a person sins unintentionally, then he shall bring a female goat in its first year as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for the person who sins unintentionally. When he sins unintentionally before the Lord to make atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. You shall have one law for him who sins unintentionally, for him who is a native born among the children of Israel, and for the stranger who dwells among them. But the person who does anything presumptuously, 
and that's literally with a high hand, whether he's native born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord and he shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. So there's a contrast between an accidental sin and an intentional, a high-handed, a deliberate sin. Now, if you, if you stay with me in the text there in Numbers, it gives us an example of a high-handed sin. Verse 32, Now, while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him under guard because it had not been explained what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So the Lord commanded Moses and all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones and he died. Uh, deliberate defiance of the Lord uh, treated very seriously. Back in Leviticus 4, we're dealing with accidental sins. And, uh, and particularly when an accidental sin or an unintentional sin becomes known. If you look back in Leviticus 4, down in, chat, in verse 13, speaking of the whole congregation. Now, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they've done something against any of the commandments of the Lord and anything which should not be done, and are guilty when the sin they have committed becomes known, then the assembly does these different things. And that's kind of interesting. So it suggests that it's possible to sin in this way and not even know it. And so how would it become known? Well, probably, most likely, uh, the Lord starts to exert some pressure uh, somewhere, uh, which causes some level of self-evaluation um, uh, to figure this out. And then uh, it comes to light under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Ah, uh, this is what's gone wrong. It does suggest there is an important role uh, for self-examination. But realize what that said in verse 13. They were guilty. It didn't matter if they knew about it or not. It didn't matter if their intentions were good. If they sinned against God's holy law, they were guilty. And I think that's just hard for us to grasp. Uh, children, um, Mrs. Holdeman and I were uh, driving once uh, in the state of New Hampshire. We were uh, visiting some friends. This was years ago. And uh, one of us was driving higher than the speed limit. And I'm not going to tell you who that was. But... Um, before we knew it, there were these uh, flashing lights in the rearview mirror behind us. And we said, uh-oh. So we pulled over, and the uh, sheriff came up to us and uh, said, do you know how fast you're going? And we said, well, we, we weren't sure, but we didn't think it was that fast. And he said, well, you know, in this area, the speed limit is such and such. And it was quite a bit lower than you would think for looking like we were in a country Road And we said, oh, no, no, we did not know that that was the speed limit. And, and that was on. We did not know that was the speed limit. Now, children, do you think that our not knowing the speed limit, that the, the sheriff's deputy then said, okay, no problem, you can go free? What do you think? Did he just let us off because we didn't know? What do you think? No. Uh, have you had experience with sheriff's deputies? <laughs> <laughs> 
You're right. He, he, that, didn't, that didn't affect him at all. And he quickly told us, well, that's no excuse. You're not knowing. And he wrote us out a big fat ticket and gave it to us. So that, that's the way it is. We understand. The fact that I didn't know uh, doesn't mean that I'm not guilty. And I think this is a hard concept for us because in terms of our obedience to God, it's so easy for us to tell ourselves, well, my intentions were good. I, I meant to do the right thing. And that somehow that makes it okay. And the Bible says, no, that God has an objective standard of what's right and what's wrong. And it doesn't matter why we violate that standard. If we violate that standard, we violate that standard and we are guilty. God looks at our sin very differently than we do. And so we need to wrestle with this. Even when I have good intentions, if I sin against the Lord, I'm guilty. Our sin is more pervasive than we often imagine. Well, secondly, the text shows us that our sin is also toxic to God, and it, it sort of contaminates the things around us. And the sin offering helps us uh, understand that, and we'll look in, in a moment at how, how the purification happens, but it helps us understand that it's sort of like a toxic waste has been, uh, has been spread around wherever uh, this sin is. And in fact, uh, we know from the scripture that if the sin of God's people is not dealt with, there are really only two options, that the Lord has to remove his presence from his people or he has to uh, remove his people. And you'll, you'll remember when, when Moses was on the mountain with God and the, the people built the a golden calf and began to worship it and uh, God's first response is again these are his people the people he's delivered out of Egypt and his first response is I'm wiping them all out Moses and I'm going to start over with you and and so that's his commitment is that uh, I, I have to remove the sinners and then Moses pleads for them and the Lord relents but the Lord then says well uh, you take them into the promised land uh, Moses I'm not I'm not going, I'll, I'll, I'll send my angel to kind of lead the way, but I'm not going on this trip. And so then Moses is pleading with God, don't, I, I don't want to go, I won't go without you, your presence with us. And, uh, and this is the idea that, that, that God cannot dwell in the midst of people who have this sin which is so offensive to God. And we might think, well, maybe this is only an Old Testament idea. But Ephesians 4, verse 30, and these cross-references are in uh, the outline there. We're told, uh, Paul writes, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And he's talking there about sin in the church, that it grieves God's Holy Spirit. And if you read there in Ephesians 4, what are the horrible sins that he's talking about? Things like bitterness, uh, being angry, uh, speaking unedifying words, uh, having a, a malice in your heart. It's, it's not talking about murder and rape and things like that. It's talking about having bad attitudes, using bad, uh, not speaking words that are edifying. These things grieve the Holy Spirit. And we understand that sin, even sin in the church, offends a holy God. And we understand the idea that sin pollutes the people around us as well 
Uh, we would like to think that, uh, uh, that these are all, a lot of our sins, they're, they're just, it's, they're victimless crimes. And yet, so often, even bad attitudes that we have go out and infect and harm people around us. I put one example of this from Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins. He says, if I gossip, I both tear down another person and I corrupt the mind of my listener. If I complain about the difficult circumstances of my life, I impugn the sovereignty and goodness of God and tempt my listener to do the same. So even in these things that we would consider fairly minor sins, uh, we, we, we do them in a way which affects other people. Now you children, uh, if I could talk to them uh, for a second here, to you older children, um, you understand how uh, your attitude in the family plays a huge role in how your younger siblings uh, respond. Uh, so if you complain or if you whine or if you insist on always having your way, how that's going to lead to that same thing happening amongst the younger uh, siblings in your family, that this is contagious. And God is reminding us our sin not only offends him, it, it, uh, it poisons the people around us. But thank the Lord, we see in this passage that the blood of Jesus purifies our sin. God's grace provides for the sins of his people. So in verse 4, uh, we're told here that uh, a perfect offering, in this case a bull, is brought. A bull without any defect is brought before the Lord. And in this case, the, the, the priest representing the people puts his hand on the head of the bull. This is much like we've, we read before in the other sacrifices. There's a transfer of guilt. There's a transfer of sins uh, to this innocent animal. And, uh, and then the animal is killed. Its throat is slit and the blood is drained. And, and all that's very similar to the sacrifices we've already studied. But here, uh, then there is something different that happens. So in verses 5 and following, some of the blood is now taken into the tabernacle of meeting. So it's taken inside uh, the place where no ordinary person could go. The priests would go in there uh, every day to light the incense. And so this says the priest will dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil, that veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, that inner sanctuary where God was, where only the high priest could go in one time during the year. And the blood is sprinkled seven times. That's the number of completion. And so the place where the, the priest operates has to be purified. And then it says in verse 7 that some of the blood is put on the horns, that would be the corners of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord. So uh, that, that, that golden altar that was in the, uh, the tabernacle what represented the people's prayers going up to heaven. The priests were offering on it uh, twice a day, every day. And that had to be purified uh, as well. And then you see the remaining uh, blood is poured out at the uh, altar of burnt offering. That's the bronze altar where the sacrifices uh, were laid. And so uh, you, you see that the picture here is that all of this is contaminated. This is this idea of how the sin is so toxic, it contaminates the whole area where this priest operates. 
And so the priest has to purify with this blood uh, all the aspects of worship, including that golden incense altar which represented the prayers of the people. That's a fascinating reality that the people's prayers uh, are, are not even heard by God. They're in a sense tainted by the sin of the people and by their representatives. And so even their prayers uh, had to be cleansed. I think it's interesting, Peter in 1 Peter talks about husbands living with their wives in an understanding way, uh, lest their prayers uh, not be heard. And it does suggest that uh, sin gets in the way of our relationship with God in a way that even affects our ability to pray. But all this blood, this blood sprinkled, this blood rubbed, this blood cleanses that sin and washes it away. And it, it didn't, uh, the words didn't occur in the verses I read, but if you look down at verse 20 uh, at the end of the next section, and he shall do with the bull as he did uh, with the sin offering, uh, thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them and it shall be forgiven them. And if you go through this whole larger section, at the end of every point, part, it says, he shall be forgiven. He shall be forgiven. This blood washes away the sin. There is forgiveness and cleansing that comes from being forgiven. And Paul picks this up in the New Testament. And he says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, for he, that is God the Father, made him, that is Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And the word he uses for sin is the same word used in the Greek Old Testament for the sin offering. Jesus Christ is the sin offering. It's Jesus' blood that covers your sin. And that's your ongoing sin, the sin you're committing right now, even as a believer. 1 John 1, 7 says, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I still uh, remember my days as a hockey coach uh, for the university here. And um, the kind of injuries that hockey players get on their white jerseys. Um, and you cannot get those things clean. Maybe there are newer products now, but in those days, and we were spending quite a lot of money on our, uh, on our game jerseys. One cut, blood all over the white uniform, and, and our best hope was we could bleach that so it's kind of dull, brownish, or something like that. It doesn't come out. But here... Isn't it fascinating that the blood of the sacrifice is treated like a cleanser? It's a powerful soap. It, it removes the stain and the toxicity of the sin. And that's because the blood, not of the animal, the blood of the animal is pointing us to the blood of Jesus Christ, which is the perfect life of Jesus Christ. His life poured out for his people. And that's what purifies you from the sins you are committing today. 
and tomorrow and the week after that. Jesus' work cleanses you. And we see also then in the text, fourthly, that Jesus' suffering and death restores your relationship with God. And there's something also unique here in how the animal is handled. So in verse 8 and following, it talks about taking the fat and the organs out of the bull. And we read that before, and that, that's burned on the bronze altar as uh, an offering to the Lord. As it says in verse 10 in our text, as it was taken from the sacrifice of the peace offering. So he's saying this is just like what we described before in the peace offering. This is God's part. It goes up as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But then look in verse 11, uh, what happens to the bull's hide and all its flesh with its head and its legs, its entrails and offal, everything that's left after it takes out uh, the fatty portions around the kidneys and the liver, everything that's left. The whole bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn it on wood with fire where the ashes are poured out. It shall be burned. So uh, here in this case, um, the priest who is implicated in this sin is not going to get to eat and benefit from his own sin. Uh, none of this bull is being eaten. None of this animal is being eaten by anyone. It's taken outside the camp to a clean place, a camp where they dump, a place outside the camp where they dump the ashes from all the sacrifices. And this is put on a bonfire. So this is um, the grease and ashes and everything left over, and it's on a bonfire outside the camp. And so the picture there, right, is the people all camping around the tabernacle and then outside of that, there is this perpetual fire and burning that's going on. And uh, Jesus picks up this language and refers to this place of perpetual burning outside as Gehenna, or we sometimes say hell. And look at Mark 9, verses 47 and 48 that is in your outline there. If you're, Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. That's Gehenna, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's what's pictured here for us. Inside the camp with God, outside the camp, burning. Now, those of you who live in uh, Bloomington, know that uh, despite our taxes going up, uh, they decided not to vacuum up our leaves this year. And so uh, I was half tempted to rake all mine up and set them on fire, uh, because what else are you supposed to do? But of course we know what would have happened if I would have started burning my leaves inside city limits. Now imagine what would happen if I took a large animal and set it on fire uh, in my backyard and had a black smoke going up with the hide and the hair and everything on the animal. That's going to uh, raise some uh, attention. But that's what this was designed to do because the people in the camp with God could look out and see that black smoke 
arising outside the camp and know that God had made provision for them, that the animal suffered outside so that they could remain inside. They were the ones who were the sinners, not the animal, but they were allowed to stay inside. So now think about that as we go back and revisit Hebrews chapter 13, which we read earlier in the service. I put a few of these verses in your outline. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. When the priest was implicated in the guilt, he could not eat the offering. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. So anytime the blood was brought in to be sprinkled on the veil, that animal had to be burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Jesus was put outside. He was put outside that was very intentional. He died on the cross outside so that his people could stay inside with God, living in fellowship with the Lord. And so all the horrors that he suffered, the greatest of them was God, in essence, turning his back on him while he's outside the camp, bearing the sins of his people. Jesus died outside, so you never have to go outside if, you're, if you belong to him. You don't have to go outside. You can be inside with the Lord. And this sacrifice points to that reality. You have a place with God because your Savior allowed himself to suffer like that as the sin offering outside the camp. So then finally, the encouragement for us is to trust in the ongoing ministry of Jesus in your life. This, this sin offering is pointing us to Jesus. The, the writers in the New Testament make that connection for us. We see it very clearly. And yet how much greater is Jesus than the offering that we've read about in Leviticus 4, an offering which had to be offered again and again and again every time sin happened. Jesus' sacrifice was perfect. It was done once for all time. And all your sin, even the sins you haven't committed yet, were paid for and cleansed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we said earlier in the service, Jesus is the only sin offering that ever rose from the dead. This great bonfire of a carcass and a hide and everything. No animal ever came alive out of that. Yet Jesus comes alive as the sin offering who has defeated death and won the victory for us. And while this that we've read about today is a provision for unintentional sins, Jesus' offering covers, yes, he covers your unintentional sins, but it also covers all your intentional sins because let's be honest, uh, we're not, sadly, only committing unintentional sins. We're quite often knowing what we should do and doing the opposite 
are doing nothing. And we know sometimes there are things we should not do, and we do them anyway with our eyes wide open, knowing what we are doing. And Jesus' sacrifice covers that. He washes that clean with his blood. He's burned outside the camp for you and for me. And this, I think, is in uh, John's mind when he writes in 1 John uh, verse one, or chapter 1, verse 8, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's that idea of purification. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the whole world right John wrote this to Christians Christians do sin it's a serious matter John says I write this to you so that you won't sin we we should be committed to fighting sin and yet what does he what does he say the thing to do is to acknowledge sin to confess our sins, to turn again and again to the Lord Jesus Christ and to know that he cleanses us. His blood cleanses you. And one of the commentators says that if you really look at the original language, although the word sin is in the word that's, that we're in, translating here, sin offering, it's more accurately, accurately translated sort of the anti-sin offering because the, the word is in a form that actually sort of means the negation of sin and why some of the modern translation call this a purification offering, that Jesus Christ is taking uh, the sting out of our sin and purifying us. And obviously the response then is we have to turn to the Lord Jesus. This offering required someone to bring the offering and to put their hand on the animal's head. That's an act of faith. Um, The writer of Hebrews says, okay, Jesus suffered outside the gate. Let's go out to him. Let's go to him in faith. Let's put our hope in him. Let's rest in him. This, This is the answer to our continual struggles with sin that we recognize we, we don't just come to Christ once and then after that we're on our own, that we're depending on him day after day to cleanse us and to help us as we fight against sin in our lives, even as we look forward to the day when he will make us perfect when he comes again. And recognize that one of the greatest challenges I think we face is, is the devil wanting to tell us, no, you're still a sinner, you can't be cleansed. And, and, and so some of us live with a terrible guilt. We, we have so much trouble believing what the Bible says. And yes, it says here, your sin is way worse than you think it is. But at the same time, Christ's sufficiency is so much greater. It's, it's completely sufficient. And his blood really washes you clean. And you and I need to believe what Jesus says about us and about his work on our behalf. I was uh, working over the weekend trying to get a head start on my reports for the 
congregational meeting. It seems like I'm always doing those the day before. So, uh, Carrie, if you're listening, I've actually got a little bit of a head start this year. But one of the things I, was, I, I, was, I want to give thanks for, I want to acknowledge, is that this past year, in 2023, I passed over 10 years since I heard those words, you have cancer. And six years uh, since I was last treated, that I've been in remission. And the, the Lord has given me a new lease on life, and I praise him for that. But I, I still live with it. And if it doesn't get me, something else is going to get me. There's no solution for human mortality. But there's a solution for human sin. And that's a much worse problem for each one of us. And Jesus Christ is that solution. His blood, his life given to cleanse you Him burned outside the camp so you never have to suffer outside the camp. You can be inside with the Lord. Trust in Jesus Christ and trust him every day as you fight for holiness in your own life. Jesus is the answer to your ongoing struggles with sin. Let's pray and give him thanks. Lord, how we thank you for your word. And we confess when we start reading scriptures about animals being slaughtered and blood being spattered and things set on fire, it's, it's hard for us to see what this has to do with us. But we pray, Lord, you'd help us to see here again another window on the work of our Savior who allowed his blood to be poured out so that we could be purified who allowed himself to suffer outside the camp so that we could stay inside. Lord, we, we have a great Savior, and all too often we forget that, and we pray you would help us. Lord, help us in our ongoing struggles with sin, but help us also with our struggles with, with guilt. Lord, help us to turn to you to turn to you again and again, to confess our sin, but to embrace the cleansing that we have in Christ and to celebrate his completed work on our behalf. And we do pray along with the psalmist that you would keep us from hidden sins and that you would not let our transgressions reign over us, but that we would be found hiding and secure inside the camp with our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. And now let's uh, turn over to Psalm 32, Selection A. And this psalm expresses what I hope you'll be able to sing uh, with a full heart, which is what blessedness is, is it for those who have their sins forgiven? What blessedness belongs to him who has forgiven been, for whom transgressions have been cleared and covered is his sin. And if you're a Christian this morning, you can sing this uh, as a celebration of who you are in Christ, one whose sins have been forgiven. Let's stand and let's sing together. <laughs> 